Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Amber Hilberling? So first I'll look at the background of this case. I'll move to the timeline of the crime, and then I'll offer my analysis. Amber Hilberling was born in Joplin, Missouri on October 1, 1991, but she was raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Her family moved there when she was three months old. She was described as a good student who enjoyed a number of activities like volleyball, soccer, track, dancing. She was also a member of the Future Farmers of America. She had an interest in beauty, makeup, fashion, and a particular affinity for shoes. In 2010, she met a man named Joshua Hilberling. They would marry that same year. He was in the Air Force so they moved to Fairbanks, Alaska, where he was stationed. He was kicked out of the Air Force for drug use. Amber became pregnant around the same time. They moved into Unit 2509 at the University Club Tower Apartments in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They were on the 25th floor. On June 7, 2011, when Amber was seven months pregnant, the couple was having an argument. Joshua crashed through a window and fell onto the roof of the eight-story parking garage, so he fell 17 stories. Amber rushed down to help him. Joshua Hilberling died of his injuries. He was 23 years old. Amber would say that Joshua grabbed her shoulders, and she pushed him away by placing her hands on his chest. This push led to him falling through the window. 19-year-old Amber Hilberling was charged with first-degree murder, although later the charge would be changed to second-degree murder. She was offered two separate plea agreements. One was five years in prison with 15 years of probation. Another was seven years in prison. She rejected both deals. She was released on bond, but it was revoked six months later after she failed two drug tests and failed to charge her ankle monitor on 10 different occasions. In 2013, Amber was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years in prison. On October 24, 2016, Amber, now 25, was found dead in her prison cell. She had hung herself. The autopsy showed that she had methamphetamine in her system. Now moving to my analysis. Even though both the victim and the person convicted of the crime are dead, the debate about whether Amber was truly guilty continues. I will look at the factors both for and against the idea that she was guilty, starting with the evidence for. Two weeks prior to the incident, Joshua had filed a protection from abuse order. It was dismissed two weeks later when the couple failed to show up at court. There was a history of domestic violence in this relationship, including Amber striking Joshua 
with a lamp. He required stitches and staples. That was the incident that led to him filing for protection. His bags were packed and sitting on the floor of the apartment. One theory was that he was going to leave, that he was the one who wanted to end the relationship. At trial, Amber would testify that she was the one who wanted to leave the relationship. Amber was using drugs. In addition to the violence, this may have motivated Joshua to end the relationship. A neighbor testified that at the time of the incident, she heard running, a loud crash, and then a woman screaming. This seems to be consistent with the theory that Amber charged across the floor and rammed into Joshua, thereby propelling him through the window. Amber admitted that she pushed him to his death. Prior to murdering him, she screamed at him and called him a coward. A firefighter who encountered Amber standing over Joshua's body would testify that Amber said, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to push him out the window. A conversation between Amber and her grandmother was recorded in the police interrogation room. Neither person knew they were being recorded. Of course, they should have assumed that that was the case. Amber said, I'm a horrible person who could do that, push my husband and make him fall. I want to be dead. I want Josh to be here. For the rest of my life, everyone's going to think I'm a murderer. I mentioned that domestic violence before. Apparently, it was bidirectional. Joshua had attempted to break one of Amber's breast implants, according to a U.S. Air Force file. The drug use seemed to involve both of them as well. Joshua had struggled with drug use, as I mentioned before. Apparently, he sold drugs as well. Then we see this question of how strong the windows were in the building. I'm not sure this matters a lot, but perhaps it weighs in favor of the defense. The University Club Tower apartment building was built in 1966. It has a somewhat unusual cylindrical design. It is believed that the glass in the window through which Joshua traveled was original. It had never been replaced. It was not laminated or tempered safety glass. Glass becomes more fragile over time. There are actually two layers of glass. Each one was 3 32 of an inch thick, separated by 3 sixteenths of an inch. This provides some insulation value. In addition to the glass being weak, how well the glass is held in place is important. The gasket around the window had also deteriorated over time. So all this indicates that the window may not have afforded as much protection as somebody would think. Now looking at the characteristics of how Joshua went through the window. Again, allegedly, he grabbed Amber. Amber pushed him. But at this point, he was still four to six feet away from the window. Amber indicated that he tripped over his own feet. Considering he was six foot five and 220 pounds, his falling body could generate a substantial amount of force. Perhaps as one foot got caught in the other, he kind of sped up. He accelerated as he tried to get his feet back under him. So this is a possibility. It could have been that he started to trip as he tried to recover and get back on his feet. He actually moved more quickly and slammed through the window. The next item that seems to be in favor of Amber is that she may have had an inadequate defense. Her defense attorney never tried a criminal case. Apparently, Amber's family asked her to fire him, but she said she didn't have the heart to do that. The defense attorney would later be disbarred after accepting $1.4 million in gifts from an elderly client. He was also charged criminally due to a few other incidents including allowing a minor to drink alcohol in his residence. 
then climbing on top of her and kissing her. This case was dismissed. Later, he was charged with obstructing an officer and having physical control of a vehicle while intoxicated. He received a suspended sentence in that case. It's never a good sign when a defense attorney can tell their client, I know how you feel. I'm a defendant too. Who knows, maybe we can share a cell. So what happened in this case? Here are my thoughts. As far as the window not being strong, I don't think it's really a good idea to trust the strength of windows under any circumstances, but especially not 25 stories up. If the window had been open, technically Amber could have still been convicted. I think what becomes important here is the idea that the windows provided a limit, in theory, to how severe the consequences of a push could be, like it never occurred to Amber that she had created a lethal situation. In looking at the relationship, these two appear to be out of control, both individually and as a couple. The violence, the screaming, the drug use, they probably just needed to be apart, but it is not unusual for young people to believe they're in love to be susceptible to the passion. They look at someone who is violent and they think, they'll change because they love me enough to change. Or something like, we are destined to be together. Some lessons can only be learned through life experience. Yet activities like flying through windows and high-rise buildings or going to prison for 25 years can limit the quantity or quality of life experience somebody can obtain. It's like the object of young romance is simply to survive long enough so they can understand reality. I don't know if it really matters who is trying to break up with whom. Their relationship was toxic either way. They had each been the victim and the perpetrator. As far as the actual push that ostensibly led to Joshua's death, Amber admitted that she pushed Joshua. When she thought she was not being recorded, she confessed to that, but she also said it was not intentional. It's hard to imagine that she was able to push a 220-pound man out of a window, even if that window was somewhat fragile. It makes me wonder if in this argument between the two of them, perhaps Joshua was exaggerating his movements, like Amber pushed him and he jumped back dramatically and crashed into the window, but of course ended up going through the window. It could also be, as Amber described, she pushed him and he tripped over his own feet. Either way, with everything in mind, do I think she was guilty? I know a lot of people believe that she is, but I think there is reasonable doubt in this case. Her confession is really not that compelling. It sounds to me more like she just felt guilty. She knew they were in a fight. She knew that she pushed him. And in a sense, she was accepting responsibility for what happened. I don't think it ever occurred to her that everything she was saying was going to be used against her in court. I think she viewed it as an accident even though, again, she appeared to take responsibility. There are no witnesses who can contradict her side of the story. He grabbed her. She pushed him away. I don't see it as murder. I don't even think it's negligent homicide or reckless endangerment. I think the dying part was unintentional and difficult to foresee. Now moving to her mental state. I think what happens here, especially when people are using drugs, is that they act impulsively and recklessly and don't really think about consequences. They have this mentality that they can just kind of bounce around and do whatever they want, and nobody will get hurt. No one will go to prison. They are always shocked when they were wrong about everything. This is what life without forethought looks like. Tumultuous, frustrating, and a lot of pain pursuing a little bit of pleasure. I think one of the more worrisome indicators in this case 
was how Amber violated the conditions for bail more than once in two different ways. This is somebody making irrational decisions who doesn't appear to care about her future. Maybe the same mindset was applicable at the end of her life. Moving on to that topic, prisons are a dangerous place for mental health. People can get despondent. Prison life tends to aggravate any pre-existing conditions. Amber may have already been suffering from a substance use problem when she was sent to prison. Clearly, she somehow had access to methamphetamine in prison. I hope the prison reconsiders their meth for every prisoner initiative. It's like the prison officials were frustrated by the bad behavior of the inmates, and one of them said, I wonder what would happen if we added meth. With her time served and any credit she would get for good behavior in prison, although I don't think she was really eligible for too much of that based on her using drugs, Amber could have been out of prison at around 39, still young. It wasn't like she was sentenced to life in prison. But even still, with a lack of perspective, she may have had trouble understanding that there was a lot of life beyond her release date. Amber was convicted based on her own statements. Her case stands as yet another example of why people should never talk to the police. Another homicide involving pushing was the Glacier Park murder. Jordan Graham pushed her husband of eight days off a cliff to his death. Her statements convicted her in that case. The commonality between these two cases is the toxic relationship, although it seems even more evident in the case of Amber Hilberling. Other than not talking to the police, I think the moral of the story in Amber's case is that toxic relationships never work out the way people hope. In a way, I think people stay in them not only because of the passion, but because of fear of losing the other person. Like they're afraid of what life will be like without that other person. When losing the other person may actually be necessary to save themselves. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.